Five and I'm on podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, Laura Caldwell and Stephen Salisbury from the Austin band Sun June. Uh, we're discussing late 60s Bay Area based music documentaries, Monterey Pop and Give Me Shelter. Sun June's newest album, Somewhere, just came out this last Friday. Uh, but first, uh, media consumption for the week. The coolest thing I've heard this week that I think everyone listening to the show, I, I know it's probably not smart to advertise a rival podcast because we're totally in the same league. But this, the coolest thing I heard this week was the Empire Magazine podcast with Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino. And I had a strong reaction to the first hour because the episode ends up being about British movies. And uh, they, spoiler alert for the episode, if you believe in spoiler alerts for podcast episodes, they get a list of great British movies from Martin Scorsese in. But the first hour is about the most memorable movie theater-going experiences, which I still haven't been able to get a physical copy of the magazine, but um, I guess that's what the Edgar Wright edited issue is also about. And they tell these amazing stories. Like Tarantino's story about going to see aliens on opening day alone will, like, make an anti-vaxxer start to believe in science and it just nothing has made me miss the theater going experience in the crowds and the way a crowd can make a movie better than that and if i'm being honest it, it's i haven't had a good experience going to a movie since i left austin and since i stopped going to the uh alamo draft house it's just evansville crowds just aren't the same i'm and who knows when studios are going to start putting in their A-game movies in and we're all going to be to get to go to it again. I, I know I say this every week, but the, the first hour just made me wonder, miss it so much. Also this week, Mark Harris's new book about Mike Nichols was just released. And if you haven't read anything of Mark Harris's, his two books, uh, Pictures at a Revolution, uh, about the uh, 1967 Best Picture nominees, and Five Came Back, which was adapted to a Netflix documentary, which I think most people would be more familiar with. He's one of the best long-form movie writers right now, and his books are endlessly entertaining, so I uh, highly recommend everyone get on that. Also, quick note of correction. Uh, at one point in the conversation, I'm describing uh, My uh, Michelangelo Antonioni's movie Blow Up, and describing a scene in there where a band starts destroying its instruments and this coming before its usage in Monterey Pop. I mistakenly say it's the birds when I meant the yard birds. Um, just one little half part of a compound word off, but one of those uh, has Jimmy Page in it and one does not. So anyway, um, so leading into the episode, Sometimes on podcasts or interview shows, whenever bands are on, it seems like they always play excerpts, uh, I guess for time's sake, uh, but I, I'm not doing that. You're going to hear, this is the full song, uh, Sun June, ba this is Bad Girl. 
Laura, are you, you're working right now? I'm working right now for uh, some reality television shows, baby. Okay, I'm I'm not going to deny or not deny that we overlapped at that reality show, baby. <laughs> but but I mean. The pit, baby. The baby. Yeah. No, Shane got an office. I was in the pit. No, no, no. I didn't have an office. I had oh, a cubicle. Wow. I willingly oh. took the cubicle, remember? You had you had walls. Let's just say that. Oh, yeah. You guys had that awful like setup where like, because it's also like a giant boys fest too, where just like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's boys club. Yeah. and it, uh, Yeah, it's just potato chips. I really, I made my mark, I'd say, among them. <laughs> Did you knife somebody? What happened? <laughs> yeah no i would challenge them to physical exertion um be cool boy exactly. and just come in snapping around the corner those boys haven't flexed a muscle since 2011 you know it's <laughs> <is> true <laughs> steven we, uh, you're in chapel hill right now i'm in chapel hill chapel thrill as they call it chapel thrill so how long have you been there uh since august 2020 so you went in in the middle of the pandemic. I did. Well, it was kind of a the you know a low point of the pandemic spread that I moved here. But I did. Um, you know, it was very safe on the drive, the drive from Austin. No, I'm sure that I'm sure the drive was safe. Like, in fact, like I took a trip to Austin September. So, like, I I, I get that. Shame, but... Shame on you. <laughs> Twitter, Twitter, shame on me. Um, yeah, no, but I mean, like, you're you're living by yourself in a studio right now. Yeah, I'm I'm in a in a basement studio, uh, near campus. It's great. Laura's been here once, but with the pandemic, it's, it's not conducive to to travel. I applaud your mental fortitude. Is what I'm saying. Um, my I, my niece is in her second semester of doing. You're doing microbiology as your ba- major. Uh, yes, but I'm in graduate school. I think your niece is in. No, no, my niece is. Oh yeah, she's doing her second semester. She's doing like it's just a lab work and all the like. Are you doing online classes or anything, or is it all online classes and then working in a lab for the rest of the day? We're gonna go into this, but it's just it's just. This is all set up for the day-to-day of, like, you guys' album just came out Friday. Like, and it's, like, fucking out there, man. And it's, like, yep, still working day-to-day. <laughs> that's that's all our music is about. <laughs> um, yeah, let's, 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 let's dive into the music. Um, I don't know when I figured out you guys had a band, because, I mean... Like we're we're all friends, but we, we we and we've worked together a lot, but we weren't like close. We never like hung out a ton. And I just remember, I feel like I knew you guys were doing music on the side. I heard about more, and then I think it was the Young video. I saw that, and I it just blew me the fuck away. And it was that really pleasant surprise when like you had like friends who are that talented and that good and also that good at something i don't have to be competitive about or worry that you're taking a job <laughs> away from me i love it <laughs> <laughs> well okay so the, you guys' origin story supposedly was that um where we first worked together you guys were recording in the office was that is that true or is that like some myth like you guys built up or we may have built up 
uh, all the stories. No, it's it was true. Hundred percent true. We recorded a a couple. We cut a couple hits. I'd say. Okay, I did the night shift. You guys were recording. It's an office. I get that no one's around, but why there? Just because you guys were there and it was night shift. Um, oh, this was during the broad daylight. This was during the daylight. <laughs> this is when everybody was in L.A. finishing. Um, yeah. Finishing Night of Cups. Okay. And s- I think it was Night of Cups. Yeah. Finishing. Night yeah, of because Cups. because things were still going on all the other projects, and we we had to like assign different activities for empty rooms at the time just to like keep us all kind of in some <laughs> normal mental state like i remember one room was like a scrabble room yeah and you could just come and go into the game <laughs> yeah we played um, slow scrabble slow scrabble my time back was after this so was there just good sound in the office no no but there were there was um there were some instruments there because of song to song. Okay. Uh, it turns out we actually didn't know, like, when that office shut down, they were like, wait, whose guitar is this? There was like a $3,000 Stratocaster there. <laughs> I don't know who brought it in, but it was there. And so we were just, we would just fuck around with it. And um, Tomas, who's also a He's musician. Been, Tom, Tomas Van Gris, who has been a, a guest on the show. That's right. That's right. Great guest. Um, Great guest. Popular <laughs> guest too. <laughs> nice. Um, I don't know how it started, but we did a parody of "Where Is My Mind" by the Pixies, rewritten to "Where Is My Life," because none of us, none of us had healthy lives at that moment. As an editing room goes, as a long, <laughs> long-term editing room goes. So, so how many songs did you guys like end up coming up with on that initial? Uh, well, they were all just like jokey songs like that and then steven and i um wrote a song for for another editor who was leaving and performed it at his kind of going away party this is jeff or can we name names or it wasn't jeff it was umar oh our band was named after but our we named our band after jeff who also left (laughs) (laughs) everyone was leaving and we were like how do we immortalize these people these legends wait 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 the the band at the time was named after jeff or sun june is named after jeff oh we used to be called jeff oh, okay j j e f f not even jeff jeffrey richmond a great editor too yeah, yeah. amazing editor. honestly yeah. he's he was one of the reasons i stopped editing because he was that good like, i can't do this yeah it's just like i'm never gonna reach the mental temperament mixed with the skill like i won't be able to reach either <laughs> it's it's so it's funny because i don't think i've ever overlapped with jeff but he's just all i know him is to be the nicest guy but at the same time editors tend to be nice guys tend to be like calm collective don't need to like insert themselves into anything just kind of sit there with their arms crossed and <laughs> take whatever is thrown at them editors i mean I think in general that's true. Although uh, there have been some editors that have walked the halls of that reality show building, we've mentioned it before. Yeah, <laughs> name shall be unsaid. But I've heard editors yelling at at their screens. Oh, <laughs> shots. Oh, sure, but they're not going <laughs> to yell at a human. No, but come on, that's out of control. <laughs> I. I won't lie if I, I'd be lying if, cause 
my family has bad tempers, so like I would be lying <laughs> if I said I haven't beaten the shit out of a mouse from here from time to time while editing. <laughs> yeah, so. Click clack, click click clack. So how did the band come from the really come from the the after hour stuff? Um, well, then you know more film things were happening. So Tomas um, started dabbling in this uh, on this project of like which Steven starred in. He was he was trying to make a movie with Steven. Like a um, like a short or a feature. It was unclear Just what it was going to be. A- yeah. As was the want at the time. <laughs> Shoot and figure out later. Yeah. But but Laura, um, no, Laura was in it too though. Yes, I was getting that. Uh so it was like based on this character who also was a musician or a songwriter, asp- aspiring songwriter, like musician uh and had a roommate who he would play with who was also like gonna leave town and it was this big romance like drama uh and we also just kind of began taking from those like moments where we were supposed to be pretending to like play music together like in a living room just like ended up wanting to do it in real life i guess wouldn't you say yeah i'd say that but yeah or were we playing together before i my memory of it is hazy because it was like what's real and what's no no it's all parallel because i remember we were shooting that movie and um we were pretending a scene where i go buy a pedal a guitar pedal and on our drive to find some places to shoot, I was playing with I was playing Tomas stuff you and I had recorded. Oh, oh. And he gotcha. was like, "Oh shit! Like she's got an amazing voice because you used to do this joking voice." <laughs> that was yes, which I would play for him. He enjoyed that voice. I know, but I I did a version of um, "Stay," Rihanna "Stay," <laughs> um, on my little wonky upright piano that I had in my uh house but i would perform it at parties um where we were all just like hanging out laughing but it's like my lounge singer voice um i mean that's really who i i am and i'm sorry you can't handle that Stephen. <laughs> let, let me ask you guys this because uh back in that with that office we did karaoke once and it was amazing and then <laughs> never again did you guys ever do something like that whenever you were together or Maybe we went to one karaoke party once together. I don't remember. Karaoke is very anxiety producing for me, but um Yeah. I don't enjoy Did karaoke. you have like guitar karaoke where <laughs> or did you like play guitar hero at someone and get to show that off or oh, yeah. I don't know. It's all it's all t- tough, but yeah, so I guess just Laura ended up moving in with Tomas around that same time too. So we ended up just spending a lot of time together and playing a lot of music together and then you know, the band slowly took shape okay uh will will patterson who you might know he helped us out too that that's the weirdest thing that was also about because the thing was like the the editing we were doing at the time was very musical and there seemed like there needed to be a lot of musical personalities there but will was the only musical one we had in office besides uh the composer so like the -hmm. fact that you guys showed like like because the thing is when you hear the song like this isn't like I'm so used to my friends lo-fi like having to like prop them up and be like you're almost there. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> you guys yeah. were just like fully formed from the first few songs I heard. Oh no, we can send you all the lo-fi stuff that happened before. Yeah, we, we've got plenty of it. <laughs> plenty of that. I still need propping up, Shane. Oh, I, I will prop you up, but I was also going to say, take the win. You guys got there. You got to the finish line, or you got to the, like the next part of the relay, whatever. I get. I think a, re, uh, a recurring theme of this conversation is going to be like moving goalposts, though. But yeah. so, what was what was the next step? Like, you guys got enough songs together. When did the album start to come together? I guess it was like a few years. No, it was a a year after us kind of starting to play together, and then we got like our first real gig. Were you guys good live performers? No. Not me. Um, well, everyone else was, not us. But <laughs> okay, wait. I let me backtrack. So, the steps we took were like, I think we recorded a Tiny Desk concert submission. That was like our first recording of a song that we like practiced a lot, wanted to get it down. And you did a live recording of a Tiny Desk concert. A submission. live recording. Yeah, we'll we'll. Will um, recorded it for us. Was Will in the band or like helping out, just recording what? He played bass, I think, at the uh, for that, but he wasn't actually in the band. Yeah, okay. He was just like helping out. Like we really didn't have any friends besides him who were musicians, so he like introduced us to all of his buddies, and they all wanted to help out too. So that was cool. And Michael just like was the the perfect uh we just connected a lot with michaels and he's still in the band so michaels our I was, guitarist i was gonna say is that how the band filled out yeah yeah eventually okay it was a really slow <laughs> it was a slow moving vehicle <laughs> through it all the, the okay so i i do want to get to you guys we've talked so much about your filmmaking background and the like i want to say amateurish like brilliance that you guys came up with musically like you guys were that good um how did it seems like it came together like the, again the 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 video with the song and whenever i love you guys' music it's always the video with the song that really gets the emotional reaction out of me like it, it, were you guys like we need to st film all our stuff or was it just like a, a promotional obligation that you guys had to do on on top of it or was it always film like we we're going to be a uh our filmmaking is still kind of a, not just our day job, but also a big important part of this project. I think we're, um, for better or worse, like kind of control freaks about how our our image would be perceived, or like how we wanted to how to, how we wanted the the band image to look and feel, because so often it's like kind of like generic pushing of like oh steven oh, the eyebrow raise uh let me rephrase that <laughs> wait did i raise want it yeah we didn't want to be um like put in a in the kind of normal like we didn't want to be put in a box of how bands are usually like marketed or um i don't know rolled out you know what i mean and uh, I think we just really enjoyed the idea of making our own music videos anyways, and we didn't have like a real budget regardless of all that. We would not have been able to pay anyone to do any of it. Sure. <laughs> so it was kind of out of necessity maybe. But we had we have a lot of strong opinions about how 
I think uh, we want our videos to look. Um, well, you directed one of the videos for the new album too, right? Or did you direct all of them? We both have been directing them. Um, but yes, Laura Laura so, solo directed one of them. Yeah, I solo directed one so far. Otherwise, it's me and Steven. Yeah. Is are, so, Steven, are you back to Austin to direct some of these, or? Um, we did all the videos that we co-directed <clears throat> prior to me leaving, um, and then Laura Laura directed the one after I left, and then I was in Austin for the um, Christmas break, and we shot a little, just shot some little thing together. The one I really had the emotional reaction to was the everything I had. It was this mixture of like all the like times people were spent together. It was the mix of the chorus and the lyrics of the chorus. Just like, I want to get the fuck out of my house and see people again. <laughs> and I mean, you guys have used the term uh, regret pop for the songs. And like, I mean, that, that that's extreme. The nostalgia is really strong. But every time I listen to you guys' music, I just, I miss... I miss Austin something fierce. Like, it's just, it's, and I'm mm. like, there's also this weird thing of like, I don't know. It's just like, when we all work together, like, just to know that your coworkers, like, had this artistic longing inside them. <laughs> I had, we had longings of all kinds, artistic and otherwise, back, back in those offices, I'm sure. In theory, we were supposed to all be working on artistic projects where that longing was supposed to help, but. Uh, that wasn't exactly how I felt like uh, that, that all played out. Do we want to start to move on to the movies? Do you guys watch? Sure. Did you guys watch these? I revisited them uh, earlier today, actually. Okay. <laughs> I, too. I, I didn't think I was going to. And then I... Um enjoyed it okay yeah <laughs> let's let's start let's start Surprised. Chrono- <laughs> let's start chronologically monterey pop uh laura uh, you- sorry shane sorry before that uh i just want to say thanks for listening to the music yeah thank you for listening and watching the videos thank you yeah it, it was it was such a it's such a, such a terrible obligation to listen to beautiful <laughs> emotional music um uh, monterey pop laura was kind of your suggestion um what was what what do you so you watch, rewatch it again? Do you remember when you first saw it? I don't remember when I first saw it. I mean, I must have been in high school. Have you seen it a bunch of times? Is that like is it something that's maybe a a handful, a f- few times? I think I've seen it in different settings. Um, uh, yeah, in college, definitely like for class because I went to art school. You know, what was the class? What were they teaching in the? Do you remember? It may have been during a documentary class. I know for sure when I first saw the other film, which was in college. Um, Shelter? Yeah. That was during a Rolling Stones, specific Rolling Stones class. (laughs) Ah, yes. Rolling Stones. Went went to a very dumb school. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That's it. I think it was a documentary class. Okay. That I watched Monterey Pop. Steven, do you remember your first viewing? Uh, yes. I was at a party, and I don't know if they were playing it with sound. I think they must have been. Just the Otis Redding performance. 
Is it, is it? Uh, I forgot. Is there another like um, the Criterion separated out the Hendrix version? Did they separate the Hodis Redding uh, performance as its own movie? Oh, maybe I didn't. I don't know if they did, but that would be amazing if they did. Yeah, I don't know that either. Because, yeah, I don't. I, 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 and I, it might have just been the clip that they were playing at this party, but um, I just remember just thinking it was amazing. Wow, that's nice. What about you, Shane? <laughs> I had the odd, uh, really awkward. So I'm a big person who likes to write down when I watch movies, and I've been using the service letterbox to do that, the diary. It's like this really lazy journal, basically, because like when I know where I saw a movie, the date, I can remember what happened that day. And so when you first suggested it, I was like, okay. And I got it and watched it and put it into letterbox. I watched it that night, and letterbox, as happens from time to time, told me I have seen this movie before. And usually when that happens, I think, oh, I put this movie on while I was getting drunk and falling asleep and just put it in. But I looked at the time frame and no, it was when it was before I drank. It was um, a period of intense cinephilia and I didn't remember seeing it at all. And Shane, hold on. What time period is before you drank? And a period of intense cinephilia. The 2007 was when I saw it. 2007, oh. 2008, or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, you were not an adult in 2007, 2008? I was. Uh, I didn't really start drinking beer until I could afford it after oh. a certain point. So. Okay, gotcha. That was just yeah. an interesting. Interesting. Uh... I would I would drink every once in a while. I'd go out with friends, but like I never kept alcohol in the house because roommates would steal it. <laughs> God. And I, we, we we will dive a little bit into these, these sociopathic roommates I lived with who were intense Austin musicians who killed out of me all my uh, musical fandom while I was in Austin. But we can get to that later. Um, Stephen, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was when we were first talking about topics of what to watch, I mentioned Woodstock just because I my, my brain was thinking like split screen, Thelma Shoemaker was involved with it, Scorsese edit on it and you had the most that. interesting comment i don't know if, can you repeat it are you good with repeating it oh sure uh what was the comment though <laughs> I'm, happy to, I'm happy to repeat it you you said the people that went to that show ended up growing up and voting for trump oh sure i might have just said all those uh you know expletives voted for trump yeah i mean i don't know if that's true i just um I think that, uh, I mean, specifically, I just think that, like, there's so much 60s unreal nostalgia. And, like, if you look at the demographics, all those fucking people voted for Trump. I don't, It's not even the, the, the just the fact they voted for Trump. It's just the fact that our entire lifetime we've had to listen to the narrative of the children of the the baby boomers the children of the greatest generation is defining our us artistically forever and that this was the greatest fucking period and it's not even that it's bad it's just okay so monterey pop when i was reading like the wikipedia stuff or going through the criterion extras they kept talking about how they debuted uh hendrix and the who and janice joplin for america and i was buying it a little but i was also finding it kind of bullshitty and I remember thinking that it was very much the like what you were saying about Woodstock, where it's like this is a um, kind of uh, uh, just like generic Hallmark version uh, of this stuff. It's a very um, 
commodified version of it. And it wasn't until I read uh, Robert Christigau wrote this really cool essay that was in Esquire, but it was also in his book, Any Way You Choose It, but it's called Anatomy of a Love Festival. And the thing is, you read this essay about the whole Monterey Pop Festival, it's besides a few racial words in there, like it's very modern telling of it because it points out that Otis Redding was the only major black artist that was playing there. And the hippies were basically children of, of like, you know, the children of World War II generation, the greatest generation who were fell in love with Bohemia and were, but it was a ostensibly white bunch of fans who were really, growing into their teenage college years were really into pot music and had disposable income and the music industry was suddenly flush with money at this point like it was starting to realize how rich it was and steven you and i talked a little bit of this before recording but like one weird thing going with you guys day jobs right now versus the movies we're watching then are them being flush with money and then suddenly the movie the music industry which is not lacking for enthusiasm in any period suddenly isn't where like artists coming out with a with a album that like people are interested in are just like yeah is another day at our jobs or mm -hmm. another day at school well since i mentioned talked about it laura might be able to comment on that but um I mean, I have no, I have no bitterness at all towards the music industry. I have bitterness for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I have no bitterness at all. For, I do, I only have bitterness for those Woodstock and Monterey pop. Um, but you know, I bet all those counties around Monterey, I bet they went for went for Hillary. <laughs> Let's so, hope so. So it's it's. <laughs> What's well, California? It's the electoral college. It doesn't matter. That's true. That's true. But uh, anyway, I'm interested in, in Laura's thoughts because Laura, Laura's dad almost made it to Woodstock. Yeah. No, I mean, my mom did go to Woodstock. My dad almost made it to Woodstock. <laughs> um, I think I, I don't know. I, I definitely understand like just you, you watch those movies and you're like, this time is just like full of whiteness and like people appropriating things. And it like, makes me feel icky re-seeing re it now in like even the current state of the world you just like pick up on even more stuff like the very end of Monterey there's a sequence before they get to Ravi Shankar's like big outro yeah big and, outro and they're like fucking <laughs> moms and dad jeans and like like old ladies like walking around the the outside of the festival, like buying artwork and stuff. And it's just like hilarious. It's like a totally different scene. It's like this commercial. It was just, it's just weird. It's a total disconnect from like hippie dumb yeah. to me. And also everyone was like seated. I thought that was, <sighs> I just it's hilarious. One of the, like, one of the fascinating things to me is the song, the, um, San Francisco, uh, be sure to wear flowers in your hair. Like that song is familiar to me right now. Cause have you guys seen uh, that movie that came out? I think it's two years, three years ago, last black man in San Francisco. It's been on my queue forever. I'm sorry. I have not seen no, it. No, yet, no, no. I, 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 as I was listening to that too, I thought, oh man, I would love to see someone make a trailer of this song matched with that footage. Cause I'm sure it, it would just like 
it's funny you mentioned trailer because I, I look I think the movie's great it's a solid great movie but the thing is it does not matter it's one of those movies that does not match the trailer its trailer is just beautiful and poetic and it's set to a modern black cover of that song like performed by Michael Marshall with the composer Emil Mosseri and it is an amazing amazing cover but the thing at the same time the whole movie and that song the new cover version are about gentrification in san francisco and about like the whole movie's about like all these black families are being pushed out of san francisco and the original version of the song was a sales tool for the monterey festival like bringing people to hate ashbury too it's wait wait what the song itself was written for that it's not a commercial like like jingle or anything, but like oh, okay. it was written it was written basically in conjunction with the, the it was supposed to bring people out to the oh. festival and it was for the festival. Amazing. I the formalities of how it was from the festival the the promote so the promoter the other weird thing about the festival is like um it was very predominantly California based. It was this weird fight between L.A. and San Francisco, where L.A. was where oh, yeah. The record industry was ostensibly at the time. San Francisco was supposed to have the avant-garde people at, and so it was a fight between the two. But at the same time, the festival was really predominantly California acts. Um, There were things like the Beach Boys backed out at the last minute, but they were supposed to be a part of it. Um, Mm. Cool. The weird thing was the Rolling Stones might have were supposed to play. This is going to come up in Gimme Shelter, but they couldn't get into the States because uh, Mick and Key supposedly had... um, because of this pot charge, they couldn't get work visas, and that's why they couldn't tour for three years. So that's why when Gimme Shelter came out, the Madison Square Garden show was the big first show, and uh, Altamont was supposed to be the end of the tour. That it was supposed to be their, their first American tour in three years, and but basically, like this is also like the first I don't know, like Coachella, Bonner, ACL, although it was like a you know, and it showed pre pre Woodstock, yeah, yeah. Pre Woodstock, and like the the other curious thing I have about the movie and the show more like I didn't I, I feel bad because like this is your pick I didn't mean to be like tearing down oh, this I'm not I'm not offended did it, what did what, okay let's get into the positives what do, why did you pick this why did what because like there's from a filmmaking standpoint and a performance standpoint there's some cool shit in here like like I was always yeah. big into like the who performance and i was thinking watching today the Jimi hendrix thing the um they 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 filmed the last the last songs to so where they can beat the shit out of the instruments and supposedly beating the instruments was a big deal to the as when the sales went on the dvd even though there was this thing where antioni for blow up was trying to use the who in beating up their instruments and could like Pete Townsend tried to say that he didn't think Antonioni could control them, so he couldn't get them. So they used the burrs to beat their instruments up and blow up. But like, oh wait, there's footage of the birds destroying their instruments and blow up. Yeah, and so like, the, <laughs> I don't know why and, that's so funny, but what what a weird band to destroy their instruments. Well, it's also just like the introduction to Middle America of like beating the shit out of your instruments, because like I was so I was in a band in high school, and our lead singer bought this really cheap jc penny's guitar to to destroy and i remember the show he did it he tried to beat it on a concrete floor and it just didn't come apart but amazing but my point was hendrix shane, shane you're gonna have to cut into your own high school band here yeah 
we're no. going to have to go to a little break, maybe 30-second break of high school band. Gloriously, there is no recordings. Or also, I like the idea of like having this like very cheap uh, uh, tape recording with all this hiss in there and then juxtaposing <laughs> it with Sun June. Like, there's... Yeah. <laughs> um, but but um, the Hendrix shot. The Hendrix shot in where he starts putting the lighter fluid over there. I was listening to commentary today and I had to admit like the angle they got for that shot was so fucking iconic. It was so cool. Like just the angle and like, cause you've seen that shot in so many commercials and just overuse, overuse. So like there's cool performances that are from this festival that are in the movie. Oh yeah. I mean, I, that's all the movie is anyways. There's no um, other document of, of the scene. It's, it's really just the performances, even the musicians themselves reacting to other musicians' performances. Like when, you know... Uh, Mama Cass is doing the uh, thing with uh, uh, Janis Joplin. Janis Joplin. Amazing. Like, that stuff to me is just so fun to watch because everyone's, like... Everyone's in on it, I guess. It's unfortunate that, like, the scene itself is kind of, like just a telling of the time, but that's like, that's all you can do. I mean, P.A. Pennebaker was hired to like make this documentary by the festival. This movie was like a $400,000 movie that was uh, instigated by ABC. And then the executive, after he saw Jimi Hendrix gyrating with his amplifier, was like, we're not airing that. Yeah. And the cooler thing that I found fascinating, especially from the first big festival, was one of the things is they gave out, the, the critical phrase was, they gave out 1,200 press people and they credited, it, the quote he used was, anyone with a side hustle. So like anyone who's like, I'm press, like they got into the festival. And then it's got a shit ton of popular press and then became the emblem of the summer, the 67 summer of love. I mean, that's it's it is what it is, I guess. I don't know. Um, Did you guys feel like Pennebaker was just like lingering on a lot of young women? Seemed like every insert shot was just like. Nobody felt that. I did not feel it, but I also, like, this is, like, we're talking the film industry where it's just, like, you're supposed to, there's the unspoken rule of doing that. (laughs) I guess, I just, I I didn't didn't feel that. You didn't feel that? No, because I I guess, I don't know, maybe it's it's something I I enjoy seeing the ladies, like, having a good time, or the ladies totally confused by Jimi Hendrix lighting his guitar on fire and stuff like yeah. those reactions are. It sounds like you guys really don't like the movie, but I think it's fucking phenomenal. The camera work alone is like why I watch it. The camera work is great. No, no, the, the camera work's awesome. I think the editing style, like um, they were talking, yeah, about, and lady editors. They were talking about the fact that they they don't they don't fade out after every song like he there's this hard cut to the next yeah. song and they'll cut out like right at the outro um there's there was a structure cuz i guess ostensibly this is mainly the first concert documentary film or at least the first popular commercial one maybe i don't know maybe but Pennebaker had experience shooting Dylan i think the lot, the previous 2 years right that had 
come out. Yeah. I mean, that, so much of that's the behind the scene touring, though. Um, the structure he talked about on the documentary was that they wanted to do it as a history of popular music and the various thrusts that caused it. So Can Heat's one of the first ones in the supposedly Southern Blues, which is a very white Southern Blues. Simon Garfunkel is the poet coming in to deal with it. Then Huma Selica is the jazz influence. And um, later he pointed out that the mamas and the papas are supposed to be the romantic image of pop. This is the history of pop music. Who, wait, who said this? Yeah, who's writing this? <laughs> this is Pennebaker on the commentary. Oh, oh. well. This oh, is the structure they were trying to get. Oh. This is how they oh. were trying to get through the concert footage. And gotcha. then finally, uh, Ravi Shankar is supposed to be the beyond of popular music. I agree with that statement. I was yeah. curious about the order because I was like, they're ending on a day concert. You know, I was confused. Okay, yeah. And it was All such right. a it was a three day concert too. And the um, Christy Gal essay really detailed what happened day to day. But I mean, you, I mean, you guys have been to your share of ACLs, right? And or or just normal festivals. And I hate, I, I've never gone to a festival. But Laura's big Bonnaroo alum. <laughs> All right, <laughs> been to a couple. The multiple <laughs> festival, the multiple stage thing does, is 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 a lot. You've been to you've been to a festival with me, Stephen, just for a day. Mountain Jam, baby. Yeah, late, up in, in late, New York. Yeah, late great Tom Petty. What was the festival? Uh, Mountain Jam. It's oh, I thought Mountain Jam was a jokey name. It's it's a legit name. Uh, it's it, that area is like Levon Helms Society. Uh-huh. You know. Uh, and is this your, like your your hometown area? Yeah. So I just out. Oh, it's, it's in the Hudson Valley. It's in the Catskills. Okay. Um, you know, it's like a forty minute drive from my town, and so it's every summer, and like it's the easiest ex- excuse for for kids to go party for three days, um, because it's just that accessible, I guess. But um. I didn't really go that much in high school. Now I'm just going on a tangent. I was more in the Bonnaroo crowd of having to drive somewhere for like 14 hours straight and like then come back for finals. <laughs> that was that was the the thrill seeking that we all Bonnaroo, Bonnaroo is actually kind of nearish to here. I remember my my brother lived in Memphis and he had to like he works in telecommunications. He had to work on the getting the tower set up for them for their internet. Well, yeah. I mean, talk about a commercial festival. My God. That what, what year do you remember going? What was it? I went in two thousand seven and two thousand eight, and I mean, both years were pretty corporate. But by two thousand eight, it was like sold to maybe MTV or something weird like that. Uh, I should look this up before I well, well, clear this on the podcast. But let, let, let's... it was bought by a big conglomerate let's stick to the positive what was your favorite uh performances from those two? Ooh, it was good. um well there was like this thing that they did um where they grabbed a couple different artists to play together in like super group so there was like a super group that comprised of um quest love on the drums john paul jones hitting the bass okay and um oh and then i think it was ben harper was leading um would it be insane was, was there a david byrne and saint vincent collaboration at that time 
not. That was a little later. No, 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 no. no. Oh. So the first time I ever saw St. Vincent, I want to say is like 2008. And I, she just came from a festival. I thought she said it was Bonnaroo. And she said she just had her first collaboration with David Byrne. And then obviously Love This Giant came out like three or four years later. Yeah. Whoa, crazy. I don't remember that. I, it might not have been Bonnaroo. I can't remember. I remember Wilco played. Oh, shit. Um, that was that was like a day show too so it was like everyone was feeling fresh it may have been like the second day we weren't all like exhausted and it was like very fun back back uh, back briefly to the band i just heard you guys' wilco cover the other day that was really good <laughs> thanks oh hell yeah that was hey, fun. that's a deep cut man that you get brownie points well, you do it, it, it's not it doesn't take much of a youtube uh dive for that one um other things i wanted to point out pennant baker uh around this time um, he was uh, he was working with Godard, and uh, B- Godard was really into the Jeff- Jefferson Airplane performance in Monterey Pop. So they they tried to make this movie that they originally called One A.M. and the A.M. was supposed to stand for American Movie. And uh, Penn and Baker's studio or office was across the street from Rockefeller Center or somewhere in view of Rockefeller Center, and they tried to get Jeff- Jefferson Airplane to play on the roof of a building in New York well before the Let It Be final Beatles concert, and the police cut it off like halfway through the first song, supposedly. Amazing. And Goddard never finished the movie, and they ended up calling the movie 1 p.m., which Pennebaker calls one perfect movie, and Goddard calls one Pennebaker movie. (laughs) Wow, burn. Burn. (laughs) Is it a burn? Yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess, well, in context, uh, that's... He didn't want anything to do with it, it sounds like. Goddard had that weird period, like, towards the end of the 60s, right before he jumped into video, where, like, he could have take. There's this vibe of, like, everyone in the film industry wanted him to take over. Like, they just, like, like they wanted him to be, like, like take down Coca-Cola and all of American commerce, and, mm-hmm. and it just didn't happen, but they were willing to give him the keys to the kingdom, it felt like, but... Sounds like one big disappointment. Yeah. That guy. Just kidding. <laughs> Did so... you? Oh, <laughs> extra letters. <laughs> did you guys? Uh, do we? Do you guys have more for Monterey Pop? Um, I think I think there's plenty. To I think in the context of Gimme Shelter, it's just um, it's so frivolous compared to what the Mazels were trying to do. I think. There's that transition also. There's this point in Monterey Pop where I think early on they were like, we were worried about the Black Panthers and the Hells Angels coming to the concert. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, I felt like it's a good transition line. Uh, totally. Mm. Um, the Otis, Red- Otis Redding died later that year. And I think the performance... The cool thing was Pennant Baker said that he was editing uh, Otis Redding's performance when he found out that Otis Redding died. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, well, such a heavy. tragic loss. But I mean, like that... I think that performance is just out of control, and I think the footage is iconic. But also, I didn't realize, because I hadn't seen the full thing, correct me if I'm wrong, The Who and Jimi Hendrix, they were at Woodstock too, right? Jimi Hendrix was. uh, Yeah, because he did the Star Spangled Banner at at, at Woodstock. I don't know about The Who at at Woodstock. There was a thing where um, they were competing with each other in London, and they were both destroying their instruments and popular in England at the time, and they supposedly either flipped a coin or the promoter made so that the who went on first and then Hendrix went on last. 
He didn't go on last because it was Mamas and Papas were the last one on Sunday night. Mm. Yeah. No, but I think that's that story. I think is from Woodstock. the The coin flip is from here. I don't know about it's from Monterey Pop. I they could have been both stories that that both festivals. Woodstock Wiki, baby. The Who, day two. Wow. Started at five a.m. <laughs> Started at five a.m. Um, My God. So, because I five a.m. waiting for Kanye to sh- never show up. <laughs> but I have, a, I have a friend who went to that show. Yeah. Yeah. But but this is why I wanted to bring it up because I'm pretty sure that both were at both things. Okay. Both destroyed their instruments at both things, and I think the idea that you are at a festival destroying your instruments in 1967, and then you have to redo it two years later, or you've been doing it. I just found that um, sad. Super sad. That's a shtick. It's a shtick, and it's so... Um, to me, it just drove home... I don't know. Not to be, like... Not to be too dour, but it just drove home just, like, how gr- how gross some of this stuff actually was. Like, it's just consumption. It's just consumption. I, I, I totally had that vibe, too. What I felt really bad about was because when, like, my friend who was in the band... Or, or the band leader destroyed his instruments, we were doing it because of Kirk Bay. And I just remember 90s didn't have that consumption vibe to it. But watching it here is like abundance. And they're like, destroy this shit that World War II made us, you know? <laughs> well, maybe when you put it that way, maybe it's cool. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know. Maybe we're just like hyper aware of like the consumption aspect because we know where it is leading, which is to where we are now. Yeah. It was just like gross i was like this is the first time like you said they they're young they have disposable income and it's just a it's the first time the world allows for this type of consumption yeah and the people are fucking loving it well it's also just like what are you rebelling against really and it's just like this this abundancy of college education and a working government and working american society fuck this shit like we don't, well, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I didn't. I didn't, I, pick up, I didn't pick up that. I mean, I, I, I know that there is. I mean, I think that some of it is cool. I think some of the '60s stuff is probably real and some, some beneficial, like, you know, breakdown. I mean, it is. It is '67 and '68 was the big riot, riot summer, wasn't it? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, I don't know enough about it to to comment on it. Rather than um, it was uh. It was interesting, and I think, yeah, not as good of a movie as Gimme Shelter, obviously, but yeah, I, I mean, I really, I really am curious, like, how does this thing spread? Like, is it just journalists liked it? Oh, I thought, I think the performances are awesome. I mean, I remember watching like yeah. Dave Chappelle's Block Party. Laura, you ever see that? Oh yeah, it's great. A Michelle Gondry movie, and that's the first concert film I've ever seen. Hmm, I forgot about that movie. Honestly, my point was like, how was Monterey Pop? widely distributed because it came out it, it no shot the, it shot the summer of love 67 it didn't air on abc it was released theatrically it was 16 millimeter blow up to 35 in 68 like is this mm-hmm. i mean i get like janice joplin does have a really iconic star making like it's a it's it's fucking amazing her performance but yeah. like is it like was it immediately star making was it star making a year later was it after like uh retroactively after the fact people were like she was good and this is the mo- the point where it happened was it the press pushing her after this like what exactly sold all these people to the as the new music scene 
in America or the California music scene? Yeah. Good question. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I wonder if I, I probably wouldn't have been cool enough to be plugged in back then, but like it probably would have blown my freaking mind if I saw this in theater in 1968. Yeah, right. I would have been in Indiana. What the fuck would I know? Uh, Laura, Laura I, actually, actually, I did have one more um, uh, Monterey Pop question I want to ask you about. Just because one of the things I love about, I feel like you guys have made some, from productions we've worked on, you've learned what iconic, how to make something iconic looking. And there's like, with pop music, you want your videos and the selling of it to make it look iconic. And like, I don't know. Is there an overlap with Monterey Pop for you on this? Just because there's so much myth making in like some of these performances of like things that you've paid attention to or things that are like important to you with both just the video making and also the performances and the songs themselves. I mean, definitely little details of of those performances stick with you for like something something that you want to also get like that feeling of again like when it cuts to when he cuts to Janis Joplin's feet tapping yeah just so good like you just you you feel such joy and then like when you're behind Otis Redding and the light is like flashing this halo around him and you see his breath it's just like the backlit shots on stage at night are so good in the movie. Yeah, they're, those are iconic and absolutely um, something we, that that in particular, we tried to get in a way when we were filming our music video for Karen O. Pennebaker talked a lot about this, like, uh, there was this weird thing with Joplin where, like, uh, there was still all this, like, behind the scenes, like, they couldn't release one performance, but then they could release another and how, like, childlike and excited she was when like she knew she was going to get to perform again on sunday night oh really yeah it was that's weird because she's she's so known for being like carefree laid back about like not being in her head about stuff but i guess she was well no 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 i don't think she was in her head it was just like her manager was telling her this isn't getting released and then like hey you can go on again because everyone knew how good you were like they were the christica had this amazing Krista had this amazing line that I thought was amazing where he, he said that he thought she was the best new rock vocalist since Ray Charles. Yeah. Wait, who said that? Robert Christigal. He's he's a he was a big Rolling Stone, Village of Voice writer. He was writing for Esquire at the time. Yeah, yeah. I, I like I like his reviews are nice and short. Yeah, consumer guide. Yeah. So are we moving on to Gimme Shelter now? Let's do it. When did you guys first see Gimme Shelter? I saw Gimme Shelter for the first time in the, in a college class. And Well, this um, is the college class we were talking about earlier. Correct. Yes. Steven? Uh, I saw it um, in Austin because uh, my friend Rebecca suggested it. Specifically the shot of um, Mick Jagger getting into... Um, the car he's leaving the holiday in and he has a long scarf on and he has to pull up the scarf from the yeah, he has from to the pull door up the scarf to so, so someone can close the door for him 
it's still so amazing that they slept in Holiday Inns in Alabama outside yeah. Muscle Shoals. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Well, okay, so uh, 21 years ago, I, I can't, okay, I can't find the recording, but 21 years ago, I was writing for a magazine, and when Criterion put out Gimme Shelter, I got to interview Albert Mazels about Gimme Shelter. Unbelievable. And it was a, he was, he was super cool. He was, it was a super cool interview, because back at the, like, it was, I did a few interviews for this magazine, and I always made sure I was, like, thoroughly researched on them, and they gave us, like, a half hour, and... I got really cocky after Mazel's was my first one. Um, I did a few more. I got cocky until Frank Black kind of kicked kicked me in the ass. I interviewed him, and he was like, "I'm not enjoying this." But with Mazel, Black from the Pixies. Yes, I interviewed him, and apparently he didn't enjoy me asking him repeatedly if he liked Radiohead and Nirvana, uh, being influenced <laughs> by him. But um, Albert Mazel's, <laughs> I did my research on him. And I want to say a half hour I was allotted with him turned into three hours. And I'm pissed off because I can't find the transcript. My hope is if I can find the tape, I was going to make this the next episode, but I cannot find the tape as far as I can tell. So it doesn't look positive, but he was super cool. And like we had, we exchanged uh, letters afterwards. He sent me, cause one of the, one point I had started finding out like him working with, I kept asking about working with Goddard and Orson Welles. And so he sent me a VHS of him working with Orson Welles and his footage he shot of a bullfight with Orson Welles. But um, Jesus, yeah, Albert Mazel, he was he was so happy. It seemed like that someone was this interested in it. And at the same time, like I think he was just getting a glimpse of how many people were interested in his filmmaking. And because Godard at one point called him the best cameraman in America, and like Gimme Shelter feels like just. He the other thing that came up in the interview was he compared like he thought that like he compared it to In Cold Blood with Truman Capote where it was just like this is a a concert movie that goes beyond a concert movie and suddenly has the feelings of a thriller just because you know what's going to happen the movie's structured so you know it's going towards this horrible ending. So does uh, Albert Mazel's like Radiohead Nirvana or what? <laughs> that part. Uh, yeah answer there <laughs> that part did not come up um i i kept asking him about the fly on the wall stuff too i'm like i i feel look i'm saying all this like i don't like it's 21 years ago like i just this morning i found the cut down version that was published so i don't remember all the like oh that's cool well, I, they're like oh, my voice is jj balbert mason i hope you like me like <laughs> like original recording so i don't know he uh, he he was cool he was very cool I mean, such a good camera person. It's crazy. Well, they they made great gardens by this point. So like salesman, have you seen salesman? Or no, no, he they made salesman. Grace Gardens was later, and like he was so he was already and he worked on uh, um, a Monterey Pop. He was one of the cameramen there too. And Pennebaker oh. talks about Pennebaker talks about him being like this. Like anytime you see this, the joke Pennebaker made was Albert Mazel's can film someone from a distance without them knowing they're filming them to the point where they would go into the room and make love and Pennebaker would still be able to film them without them knowing they're being filmed. Strange conceit, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, that, yeah, I get that. I get that. Uh, the other person, the other uh, two filmmakers of note on um, give me shelter was George Lucas was at Altamont filming it, but he apparently his camera jammed and none of his film is in the final cut. 
but uh, one of the sound people at Altamont was Walter Murch. <laughs> well, Godard famously f- referred to Lucas as the worst cameraman in America. <laughs> There you have it. 24 frames a second, the worst. (laughs) (laughs) What Um, what was you guys' reaction to Give Me Shelter the second time? I think I was, um, I think with everything, I'm just like way more um, sensitive or like, like Stephen was saying, hyper aware of kind of where we are now. Like we, as you know society and culturally like the the whiteness you know of that time obviously it was like hovering over it as like a dark cloud anyways um with with all of the there's a lot of dark clouds over this movie yeah but even like the maleness and like the the maleness yeah yeah Uh, i felt it even from the people that we were supposed to be like rooting for in a sense to 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 some degree have you guys ever have you guys ever felt that like uh mick jagger i think it's a vaguely mod british thing but he always reminds me of malcolm mcdowell and clockwork orange and so he gives me this mm-hmm. like vaguely yeah. intimidating male presence let's just say oh yeah it's it can be a little icky i mean there's certainly a of a plenty of of documents plenty of footage of of them you know going going kind of crossing the line in many ways you know so i i get that and it feels like there's a lot of like not great stories about the rolling stones crossing that line already so right yeah yeah totally so that all felt like way more um like hitting me harder and like even when they were kind of reviewing footage and um, Keith Richards is, or not Keith, Charlie Watts is like, just his, just his way of um, internalizing the moment. Well, Charlie Watts seemed like the only one who was reacting because it's famously yeah, it's... that that uh, Mick Mick Jagger was not reacting that strongly. Like he had some flinches at the beginning when the radio call-in show was played, but like. He like he gave some interview to John Winter and uh, John Winter in the mid '90s where he was he just he didn't want to cop up to this like idea that like I was witnessing the '60s dying. He just felt bad about someone dying in front of him. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I mean, yeah, his biggest reaction was against his own response in an interview. He gives he that like, weird <laughs> utopian quote early on. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I love that though. Don't you, I mean? It's, it seems like the Maisels want so badly to access some interiority from the Stones, and they they can't get it. <laughs> they cannot get it, and they maybe get it a little bit with Watts, but like not that much. And it's just like it's it's cool. Well, when I talked to him, because I, I felt bad because it was this days well before I was ever near an editing suite. So I kept asking him editing questions. And um, he, basically, he, Albert Maisel said he had nothing to do with the editing. But th- that was uh, Charlotte Zweiger was the, uh, was the uh, one of the co-directors who was basically in charge of editing. Basically, they set it up where they 
she, I think she edited all all their movies. She, they basically set it up to where they were going to film the Stones because they said they wanted to come and watch it, and their reactions was going to be the way that you kept the fly on the wall methodology, but still got to show some interiority with them. I've heard that it was her idea to have them watch it, but it could be wrong. That totally makes sense. Because I also felt bad when I was looking at the interview, like I was not interested in her at all. I was talking about the uh, Maisel, <laughs> ma- the male Maisel brothers is all I asked So about. I could be totally wrong about both the statements, but my what I what I remember could be wrong is that she's edited all their movies, but she got the directing credit on this because it was her idea to have to have them watch it. And I find it so fascinating because like, I don't know, especially just in the 60s. It's like those images are becoming, we know those images to be iconic and we're able to watch the Stones like look at their own, <laughs> look at their own emerging iconography. You know, it's really weird. <laughs> but this movie is about failure, it feels like. Like it's because it's like, um, there's just such dread going into this movie. Like it, it's not a traditional concert movie. Like, the great critic Lester Bangs thought that at Altamont he was there and he thought the Stones had never sounded better than when they played there. And maybe this is a great tour. Like the the, the whole movie opens with the uh, photo shoot for the Get Your Yaya's Out photo cover. Um, the Madison Square Garden show is where they did most of the recording from that sh- that show. And like, oh, interesting. Yeah, it, like this is Let It Bleed. I think was released mid tour and like the muscle shows they recorded uh, uh brown sugar wild horses which they showed wild horses and you gotta move both all songs from uh, or excuse me those are songs from sticky fingers but like it, it's weird how like this this isn't a triumphant movie this is because this movie uh um premiered at the 71 can film festival well yeah yeah i didn't know that wow I wonder, you know what I'm curious about is if the Maisels were, I don't know if you guys saw Salesman, but uh, there's not really a landing point, right? They don't like have an ending to go to. And it, it, I think they filmed for like the majority of this tour. That's why they were in Alabama. They were, um, so basically they um, they were friends with Haskell Wexler. Haskell Wexler asked them if they wanted to film Madison Square Garden. They filmed there. They filmed Baltimore. I don't know how they got to uh, Muscle Shoals. But I don't know exactly because I want to say they really only filmed the coasts, like they only filmed Altamont and Madison Square Garden. Like I, oh, I might okay. be mis- I might be. Maybe you're right. Maybe they With did. Muscle film- Shoals in the middle. Well, I'm just curious because after Altamont, they had to make the movie about that. They had to make the movie about Altamont, and I'm curious if the Maisels almost resents the wrong word, but like it seemed to me like there might be another movie there. Like, if Altamont doesn't end in tragedy, like, what is the movie? Yeah, but I get the feeling they had limited access. And Uh, when I asked him about it, because I was, again, asking the editorial, how do you figure this out? And he was, again, I was asking stupid questions. I was asking him the very, like, were you watching the end of a generation six months after Woodstock? How was that? And, um how he lucked into it but i i think the general vibe was like you film someone long enough you get the narrative of a person's life and um 
I don't know. I mean, the, the bigness of of Altamont. Altamont was a you know, three hundred thousand people were there. It's crazy. It's Altamont is 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 in and of itself fascinating. One of the cool four births, four births. That's what's four fucked births. up. The deaths are fucked up. The births are way more fucked up. Four births was it? Yeah. Four deaths, four births. Um. The crazier thing that I noticed for the first time watching this the second time was um, you guys have seen David Fincher's movie Zodiac? Uh, I don't think I have. I have not. There's a scene where a character, a San Francisco lawyer named uh, Melvin Bali, who's played by Brian Cox in there, has to talk to the Zodiac killer on the phone. Melvin mm-hmm. Bali is the lawyer for the Rolling Stones who is negotiating. The real Re- Melvin Bali is the one that's negotiating the Altamont thing. And he was also, by the way, hmm. Jack Ruby's lawyer. Oh, well. Yeah. The guy with the cool glasses? Yeah, who had the giant <laughs> library office with all the alcohol on the bookshelves. So cool. Yeah. I mean, they filmed that, which you, you already realize. Like, they they go out of their way to film this interaction because they know that this the production of this thing that they're trying to do is going to be a shit show. Yeah, like, good point, Laura. But that's what I guess I was curious. If they filmed that, did they film other stuff? Yeah. There, there's something about the fact that, like, uh, I want to say I, I, I did in the research 21 years ago. I don't remember it now, but like, it was someone from the Grateful Dead suggested, "Why don't you guys get the Hell's Angels to be your security?" And they paid the Hell's Angels so little money to do, mm. yeah. And they promised yeah. them all this beer, and they were obviously That's all they were in it for, basically. It's, it's such a shit show. It's just like, what did you expect? Like, I get that, like, you want this utopian idea of, like, ooh, the music's going to make everyone bring out the love for everybody, but it didn't. No. A lot of drugs, too, I think. Oh, yeah. That can't help. That was the thing Maisel's also said to me that I've forgotten about was he was like, he said that a bunch of people got off drugs after watching Gimme Shelter. And I said to him, like, oh, I just noticed people not wanting to drink after watching The Hell's Angels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean... I have never heard Under My Thumb the same after seeing this movie. Like, Under My Thumb is just, like, constantly, I think of as the as the song where someone died to, got stabbed six times while the song played. So, so gross. And, like, the se- way the sequence plays out in the movie, it's like this is a Pruder film. Like, it's just, like, they have to go back over it again, and they have the point where they show the gun up against the dress to make sure that the gun was there. Yeah. Like the original, like the original story supposedly was that the guy was named Meredith Hunter. Um, he had been warned about the county, so that's why he had the gun on him. Um, witnesses found him with said he looked like he had drugs in his system. Although one witness said didn't look like the case. The autopsy showed that he did have methamphetamines on, in his system, but um, a lot of people basically saw it as like. The Hells Angels were hassling him because he had a cute Berkeley girl, white girlfriend. Hmm. And he pulled the gun. It was a 22. It was this long 22, which they show in the movie. Uh, there's supposedly a frame where there was a orange muzzle, but they couldn't tell it was a fire or not. Um, some Hells Angels witness say that he was trying to come at the stage, but the film shows stabbings, and it's just you witness a fucking snuff film in a concert movie. It's so, it's a lot. Yeah. I didn't make it to that on my second viewing today, or my viewing today, because I didn't want to watch it, but didn't this kind of, like, 
end the Maisel's false idea that they could be flies on the wall? Didn't they have to like testify or something at some point? The I don't know. That makes sense. I the one thing I found was the guy that killed the guy was acquitted on self defense. But it went to court. It did go to court. Yeah. My God. Yeah. So Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash are at both Monterey Pop and Heron are not in the final film. Santana is not in the film either. Um, there's all the fights from the Hell's Angels earlier in the film. Um, <clears throat> Jefferson a- Airplane um, gets hit over the head. Grace Slick at one point kind of does this both side uh, both sides ism where she's just like, keep your bodies uh, off each other unless you intend love. Mm-hmm. The Hells Angels, by the way, are considered a uh, organized crime organization by the FBI statistics right now. Like, I've always been f- fascinated with them in general just because, like, I guess there's the Hunter S. Thompson book, but um, just, like, little things, like, they have the matching jackets in the movie. Oh, yeah. So it's... When it's not scary, it's hilarious. <laughs> Why did we pick this movie? Just because like it was culturally more, it has something going on with it, as opposed to it had some substance and some real life and death stakes? Good question. <laughs> Versus other ones? Like Monterey Pop. I was thinking, too, about um, one that we didn't mention in the thread was uh, it's a great music movie, is um, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart. Have you seen that, Laura? Um, making about the making of Yotel, uh, ah, blah blah blah, about the making Yankee of, Hotel folks, Foxtrot. Yeah. Oh no, I that made me think of um a different. I mean, it sounded like Wilco, but it made me think of um something else. I'll I'll bring that up later. You can keep talking about this. That has this amazing version of uh, "I'm Always in Love" from uh, Summer Teeth. That like it's um. Glenn Kotsky is the new drummer from Wilco that takes over. Oh, yeah. It was when he came on. I thought that version of that is the definitive version of that song. Yeah, great song. Um, You're just asking why we picked it, and I was just thinking about the music docs that we were. There's so many. There's so many great music docs out there also that weren't mentioned that we could have. Like, I would have loved to have watched um, 20 Feet from Stardom again. You know, I still haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's amazing, you guys. You have to watch it. We should have watched that. I'm sorry. That's a that's, well, that's a stellar movie. That's on you. <laughs> um, that's on all the listeners to this point. Did you ever see? There's a who's who's the banjo player? Scruggs. Steve Martin. <laughs> yeah, he's got the rhythm. Uh, <laughs> the jerk. You're talking about the jerk. <laughs> Yeah, you know that famous musical, The Jerk. Are you talking about Scruggs? <laughs> no, no. Um, Bella Fleck. Bella Fleck is the player, and the movie is called uh, Throw Down Your Heart. Bella Fleck goes to um, a few different places in Africa to uh, show people like the origin of the banjo, basically. That it was like an African instrument. He goes to mansplain. So it's like this, he goes to mansplain the banjo yeah, to the. He goes to, <laughs> no, he goes. He goes to his village. The banjo like, was invented in Africa. Yeah, he goes to. Um, he he meets up with all these different artists, African artists, and um, just jams with them basically. Uh, so it's very um, Paul Simon, you know. Meets, oh, okay. Meets the old crew. <laughs> 
Um, it's from what from my memory of it, it was very good. Besides the whole like white guy going to Africa thing. This does roundaboundly get to something I was thinking about. One of the big celebrations of Monterey Pop was they were talking about film stocks getting fast enough. Sync sound, because the um, Pennebaker was a big, he was a filmmaker who was finding ways of getting real-time filmmaking of behind-the-scenes stuff with, you know, innovations in film speeds and sync sound to, like, get you behind the scenes of something that you wouldn't see before. Yeah, he des- designed his own camera, right? I mean, I... I I think he did. Maybe you can speak to more of that. I, I mean, I heard about that. Oh, I mean, I think he's. I think he designed a camera to make it smaller. You know, he's just trying to be sneaky. One of the reasons I don't think I appreciated Monterey Pop enough, especially first viewing until I read more about like context on it, was just I just got this vibe of like I've seen these performances before. I've seen these people perform before. This was supposedly the first time you were seeing them in a very slash and grab filmmaking session where people were trying to get footage and sound and mix them together. And now it's so fucking commonplace to where like a live performance is just not a big deal. Although if Christopher Nolan decided that he was going to shoot a 120 frame, 70 millimeter version of and- Billie Eilish right now. And, and then reverse it. I mean, would we flip out? Like, yeah, do reverse the set list, Laura. A little memento action. Is that what you mean? Uh, yeah, I think you're. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be that excited about it. Yeah. But you're. I think you're right in the fact that like this is kind of the first version, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, 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 it was, it, it's not that. It's just like, are, is this like, is this the first version or is this like the newer version of like a kinescope shooting Elvis from the waist up? Like, it's just, it's better. And the more we get more intimate with these performers and musicians as they come up with beautiful music, do we get deeper into their brains as they're lyrically presenting something to us or musically presenting something to us? Are we fighting for that or does it fucking matter? Uh, I think there's a scene in Gimme Shelter that feels like it's adding something where it's slow motion of Mick Jagger while the song's playing. Did you guys see that? The scene? slow motion stuff is so good because they, oh, yeah. they use it in the trailers too. It's so good. It's so good. And, and it's, it's, it's with the close up of them just like kind of, yeah. The close up of in what? The, of the crowd? Of the crowd. And, and it's like a couple ladies maybe. I don't know. It's some people in the crowd and they're just like, they're all in one like flow of bobbing and weaving yes. <laughs> to the music. Just go back to the ladies' uh, point you were making about uh, Monterey Pop, Stephen. Except yes, these ladies. Although use this it. shot was less was <laughs> less um, voyeuristic, but I guess it could have been Mazel's. Now that now, now that I know Mazel's was at Monterey Pop, it could have been him lingering on all those uh, those people. Um, I actually think it probably was Mazel's based on what the commentary was saying. So, but I mean, that's based um, on that. Well, he matured by the time he got to give me shelter then. Oh, I love the use of returning to the, the same lady, uh, the same woman in the crowd later on when they just keep like having to restart songs. <laughs> there, there's that one crate shot of the girl crying 
in the right before all the shit falls it goes down yeah definitely yeah i mean the editing is out of control good right very i the thing i regret most not asking mazels about was just the setup on the stage of them filming just because they were so close to everybody on the stage they had the big behind the scene shot there was a lot of shots in mainly in give me shelter there's from an editorial standpoint there was this willingness not to cut like they especially when you got a shot of a hell's angels looking like he wanted to fucking kill everyone around him like they just would not cut off it and like uh, especially when band members are on stage and just like they kept with it just to show it, it was chilling it was very effective yeah mm-hmm. yeah i guess what i want to start to wind down with is um one of the things I've been talking a lot on here about is this idea of like the pandemic has gotten rid of FOMO and um, <laughs> yeah. And the thing is like, what is pop music really supposed to be like? It's, it's, a, you know, short for popular music and popular is supposed to be ephemeral and like move on and like change. And it's all about image making and myth making and, you guys are making some really good music right now. You guys are making some really cool images from with the music too right now. But you're you're make you guys are dealing with right now like a industry that is not what it was in 1967. Like it's not as lucrative as it was in 1967. Like if I were to say that music is really the the idea that music is never as as important to someone as they are when they're 18 years old do you think that's unfair mm. i don't think that's unfair do you guys are you guys appealing to 18 year olds no <laughs> <laughs> i think you you guys' music has to appeal to someone who's lived a little bit of life so there's that yeah yeah it's very um mid midlife you know <laughs> Uh, cuts the bone, Laura. Cuts the bone. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that we worry too much about like whether or not we can survive in the in the in the music industry. I think we're just like our scope is pretty small, and and we're excited to do what we can. But I don't know. I'm not too worried about it. Are you, Laura? Um, I've never once worried about it. <laughs> I should I should elaborate more, but maybe I also don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah elaborate. Yeah, elaborate. <laughs> I, I, I think we just, we try to keep the realities of what you just mentioned just, like, in check. Like, we know what the industry is for, there's so many indie artists and so many artists that I, I wish were getting, you know, more attention um, than they than they get. And uh, so I feel like we're really lucky and honored to be part of even that like subset of musicians and and a community. There's a strong community for sure, like who show up for those artists, and that's awesome. So I can't ask for more, certainly. And I, um, you know, I'll just. We'll just keep doing us and whatever happens, happens. That's all. Yeah. And, you know, we're all, we've all been in the film industry at least some, some point. I'm not in it anymore. But Shane, you know the phenomenon that happens at parties where, like, maybe this only happens to me. <laughs> where I got a feeling it happens to all of us. Well, 
Well, like, you know, there's opportunity at a film party. Like there's there either is mm -hmm. or perceived opportunity where like, oh, I could connect with someone who could like help me get the next project. Right. I I have this really big problem where like it's not really a problem. Like I've, I've managed to try to simplify it where it's just like I need to stop thinking this as a transactional thing. Like I just I just want to be friendly with people. And like if totally. something happens, cool. If not. I just want to be friends with people. Like, I don't want to like base, like I like what one of our uh, old bosses got in contact with me recently and got me down this research uh, binge. And I was looking up this thing for this artist that he, he got, he was making me look up and the research, he started talking about this thing called, um, it was, it was resume values versus eulogy values. And the idea was, heavy. yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's basically, do you want to like have done stuff in your life that's important that got you your next job? Or do you want to do this stuff that people talked about you at your funeral being a good person? Wow. Yeah. And it immediately, it was very clarifying. I was like, oh shit. Cause it's, it was really clarifying. Cause it's like, oh yeah, that's what I've been going for like the last, I don't know, two years where I was just like, I, you know, I can't control what. Uh, successes or what is happening to me career-wise, but it's not worth not being a good person or not being kind or nice to people. Like that, just it's that needs to be north star of fucking everything. So, well, I definitely want people I to hand out my that... resume at my funeral. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess... I want to hand out my resume at someone else's. <laughs> Yeah, because how are you realistically going to get new work from the right. the grave? Like, are you just yeah, going to reanimate right. yourself? Like, this guy lost his job. Maybe I should get it. But but I guess how it I guess what what why I bring it up is that you know since the music industry quote unquote like is not doing well or whatever like I've never had the feeling like everyone is so nice. Yeah. Because the only people who are in it are in it for absolute love of it because there just aren't there aren't that many it's it's not like the film industry where there's a you know more opportunity i do find that like the more we're able to do in this industry the i'm just surprised that everyone's cool and everyone's good like so many good bands yeah. out there it's crazy so it's like a little bit different than i guess other yeah the nature of it nature of it's different yeah and good right i feel like it's pretty cool out there laura oh absolutely i mean I, there's always like egos and competition and in, in whatever you're doing like a little bit but it feels so much so minor compared so much more minor and I, well also maybe because it's it's grown into this more of a you know a scattered scene and like dive bars are also like great venues for artists who are even well established in their community like they like playing these places because lots of people are there or like it's really small cover fee or whatever like every night of a of a bar performance type of you know pre-pandemic world it's like not it, your your platform is just totally different than someone trying to get a film out there i mean it's definitely more intimate i got a vibe that it's going to be more successful much more quickly than film is going to be yeah you're going to be able to play a dive bar much sooner than anything else Exactly. Well, yeah. and just in terms of creative practices, unrelated to the industry, you mentioned early to earlier, Shane, that like you're trying to convince yourself like it's not a big budget issue with film. 
and mm-hmm. I, applaud, I applaud. We talked about attempt. this before recording, yeah. Yeah, I mm-hmm. applaud your attempt to believe that, but it's just much harder to iterate if you're trying to make films. It's just much harder to make them. And, like, you can make hundreds of songs a year for a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. And not put them out. And not, you know, not put them out, get better. You know what I mean? Or whatever. I would be remiss. I need to ask you guys about recording. Like, um, like, how do you guys feel about home studio versus actual, like, professional studio recording? Well, in one case, we have someone operating at the helm who knows what they're doing. <laughs> and, and that was yeah. true for both for both records. Yes, yes. I'm saying the, the difference between <laughs> pairing. Yeah, the, the home studio versus yeah. someone knowing what they're doing. But um, yeah, we were we were with people who knew what they were doing both times and in a big studio. So I think there's obviously like freedom in being at home. And I've even since learned that like recording whatever extra vocals I need to do in like a quiet, safe place where like the pressures are off. It definitely it's a totally different sound. Like my voice is just completely different so there's like performative aspects of being in the studio versus like home recording i think um that that differ for better or worse but it's it's also just like fun to go into a studio when wouldn't you say steven yeah i i personally am i am just terrible in the studio but i do enjoy going in there especially when i'm not playing but yeah laura's got a really good um Uh oh compliment no, yeah, it's a compliment, but I mean, like, Laura's got really good instincts and really good, uh, I, you, you have to have, like, good instincts and also be confident that what you're hearing you like, right? And I think Laura does a great job when we're recording at home to, to find the sounds that she wants and be confident in them. So I think for the third record, let's assume we're making a third one, um, it'll be a little bit more of a combination of home recording and studio stuff. There's one song on this last record that has home vocals. I was going to ask, was the, la- was the last song recorded at home? Mm-hmm. The vocals. Nice, Shane. Shane, you're, you're, watch- you're listening to our Wilco cover. You're, you're making it through the record. Uh, this very, <laughs> yeah. This is very flattering. Very flattering. You, you, you guys don't need this flattery. You guys are that good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I've just received so many compliments. Thank you, Stephen. But I, uh, <laughs> I have to say that he, Stephen, is the same. You know, you, you also you you're good about. Um, maybe I'm I'm fine in the moment and at home, finding what I like. But like coming prepared to the studio to make sure that you get what you like is really hard. I'm not explaining this well, but like. Stephen will can elaborate better. Is it a thing he, where you have to listen to what does and doesn't work on demos and shit like that? Well, just being in the moment of the studio with maybe someone else recording that, um, like a producer type role, like Danny was, you know, they're, they have their own opinions of what you're doing. And sometimes that can like trip me up for what it is that I maybe intended to do. And then I start doing something different because I want to say yes to everything. And um, that's got to be rough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, sometimes it yields very good results. And other times it's like, oh, I feel awful that I just spent all this time on this one idea that I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) 
like having a shot list. You got to come in with the shot list. Like having a shot list. That makes that's, sense. That's it. The, yeah. the reason and, I asked and, about the studio was because I had never been in one, and I always imagined it was pressure filled. And a shot list seems to make sense. Like, oh yeah, that would be like, like, it's that feeling whenever we we still shot film, and they always described it as f- the sound of the motor going, a uh, film going through a motor camera was money being wasted or money being used. <laughs> yeah. Being used. Yeah, that's and great. like. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, everyone we've worked with has been been awesome in like in 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 uh, dealing with my kind of like hyper anxious. <laughs> why aren't we moving on to the next thing? You know, just yeah, it's, I'm not I'm not a good hang. <laughs> that's not you know. I think. <laughs> no, what I mean, like, what's I, your perfectionism I, about? Like, is it about like getting efficiency, or like, are you a sound? fanatic about about efficiency it's about it's about like getting what i know needs to get done done yeah because everything steven understands time better than anyone in the in the group i'd say besides maybe christopher nolan (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly well i wanted to wind down with one more like effusive compliment you guys like i i just was I, I the last few days I've been listening to your two albums on repeat, and Laura just like I I was describing to a friend the other day is like you didn't know someone you worked with had those pipes, and the thing is like it's not even just that like it's the fact that like you know I've had friends who have tried to make it in music where like they're a singer and like use their voice as an instrument and it's hard to figure out how to make an individual voice out of your instrument and the way like you use these like soulful low breathy moans to your like high register like the going back and forth between the two like it's so expressive and steven like generally like i did just as a guitar player like like the songs are so simple but they do so they make so little steps beyond what they need to be doing and like they're so soft, they're so simple, but they do enough to get an emotional reaction. And it's just, I didn't know I had friends that were doing that. It was impressive. Thank you. That's really nice. <laughs> yeah, those are those are my kind of thank you, thank you, Shane. You're you're uh, you're you're. I don't know if you know that that's a very good compliment for us. It feels that's very. Uh, that's what we want. We want songs that do that. So thank you. Don't fuck it up on the third record. How about that? Uh, I'm gonna turn into a screamo um, singer. Yeah, <laughs> start, start, as as our old friend Chris Roldan used to say, you're gonna turn into the Cookie Monster singer. That's right. <laughs> Steven Salisbury, Laura Caldwell, thank you guys for being on the podcast. I hope the best for the album. It's great. Um, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so stay so safe fun. And, stay safe and sane up there. 